The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. The whole point of our meditation practice and the whole point of gathering like this, when we're at home practicing or at home reflecting, on the mind, on our experience, the whole point is to see something or to learn something that we haven't seen or learned before. Or, if we have been studying the mind, this mind, which is always here and now, then to deepen an understanding that's already begun to arise. Oh yeah, that's really how it is. That really is how the mind is. So either we're having a an initial discovery where we're seeing something about the nature of the mind that we hadn't seen before, and generally these insights are surprising. That's what we mean by seeing something we haven't seen before. And it doesn't matter. We might have read about it over and over again and can talk about it, but when we actually see the nature of the mind, it's surprising. It's like, it doesn't matter how many times you've seen a lion, but when you see a you know, if you go to Africa and you see a real lion, it will be a different kind of experience. You could have spent, I don't know, I think it's Ajahn Sumedho who says this, you know, we could have a PhD in honey. But then the day we actually go out and taste some honey, well, it's a, it's a different experience than all the years of study, all the books we've read about honey, the chemistry we've studied about honey, but it's not the same as tasting it. So we call this a path of insight. Some of you know that this particular lineage of Buddhism here in the States, we call insight meditation or vipassana meditation. So we take this part of the path where the mind does see something it hasn't seen before, and we decided, well, let's. this is an important part of this practice, so let's use that that word, which is vipassana, or insight, seeing the way things are. So some of you know we've been reading through Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart. We're now on the last chapter, so we'll take this week and next week to look through this chapter, reflect on some of the words of Ajahn Chah, this great Thai meditation teacher, Buddhist monk, who died in the early 90s. And this chapter, chapter 37, is called Toward the Unconditioned. I was thinking for the Buddhist studies class that meets on Monday nights, uh, coming up with a reflection for the people in that class that we're going to have small groups this coming Monday. And we've been talking about the experience of dukkha, or the unsatisfactoriness of our lived experience, no matter the experience. Even the really nice experiences, which, you know, life sometimes delivers really nice experiences, really pleasant experiences. But there's something limited even with the most pleasant, nice experiences. Limited in the sense that it's never enough. Even if we're momentarily satisfied, it isn't long before we need or are interested in another nice experience. Because whatever nice experience we've had, that was that, 
but now what about now? <laughs> I could use another one of those satisfying experiences. And I thought, well, one, one way for the group to reflect is to just this little thought experiment to imagine that some young adult, maybe a nephew or a niece or a grandchild or maybe even one of your own kids or somebody you've mentored who has a lot of respect for you and you really love them and care for them. And maybe this young adult, this young person is, has, is not uncommon for all of us and maybe even more so for younger people, younger adults. Is sort of wondering, like, what the heck is this all about? Or, you know, how do how does a human being actually find some real happiness, real satisfaction, or real safety in this world? And so they come up to you or come up to us and they say, "What do you know about this thing called happiness? What what has your life taught you?" What kind of clarity do you have about this thing called happiness, human happiness? And I don't mean, I'm not that interested in temporary, temporary nice experiences, like, well, why don't you go get a good massage, or go take a nice hot bath, or go, go shop and buy something. That will make you happy. You know, or here's, I saw this really funny movie the other day, it's on Netflix, watch this. That's not the kind of advice they're interested in. I mean, they have enough understanding. It's not that those things aren't, in fact, don't, in fact, deliver some pleasantness. They do. I mean, clearly, there are fun experiences, pleasant experiences, somewhat satisfying experiences for a while. But the person is really asking for a, a deeper response. And what would we say to them? You know, what has our life taught us? What is the fruit of our insight? All the little deepenings of understanding we have about this mind. And by insight, you know, the Buddha's not interested in, you know, insight in terms of the neurology of the mind or in terms of even the psychology of the mind in and of itself. Insight really has to do with what's relevant. And what's relevant to a human mind is the experience of mental suffering and the release from mental suffering. That's really what's of interest, right? So when we talk about having insight, a deepening of understanding, it means that with this mind right here and now, I know something about what causes, what leads directly to a contracted, heavy, difficult state of mind, and I know something about what leads to the release from states of contraction, heaviness, so what would we say? I don't expect you to answer, and I wouldn't want somebody to ask me to sort of answer that question you know, without some time to reflect. But I think we can hold that question and, and actually feel responsible as if somebody we really cared about dealing with the normal challenges of having a, a life, a body, and a mind asks us, well, what do you know about real release, real happiness, real peace. What do you know about the causes for, like, what to avoid? What causes difficult states, states of real suffering? Is there anything we can do about suffering? Are we just driving blind 
and and whatever comes our way, whatever difficult states of suffering come our way, or beautiful states, that's just fate, and there's really no way to participate in how things unfold. Is that the message we would deliver? You know, it seems random. You know, we're just along for the ride. And the thing is, you know, our culture, the way generally our culture responds to a question like that is it basically, you know, tells us, teaches us to be consumers. Like, well, if you consume things, that's one way you can manage. You can be so distracted consuming things that you don't ask that question. There's a kind of a gripping story. I'm not sure. I think it might be George Orwell wrote this short story. Maybe somebody in the room knows. But I read I read it long ago. I took a course a long time ago at UC Berkeley when I was a grad student there in uh, early 80s. And, uh, and he, he tells a story. It's a fiction, fictional story about somebody who crosses over the Andes, the high mountain range in South America, comes into this valley, and there's a group of people there. And through this group of people has, has been isolated for a long time. And uh, I guess through some mutation, turns out that all these people are blind and have been blind for a very, very, very long time. Generations and generations and generations and generations. And so all of a sudden this guy shows up who's not blind and... Uh, you know, seems to get what's going on here and tries to explain to them that they're blind. And uh, after a few weeks of this person interacting with this community of people, the community, you know, sits down and talks to each other and they realize, this guy's crazy. <laughs> and they, they put him in a place. You know, they're, they're a loving, it's a pretty harmonious, nice community uh, culture. And they... But they want to take care of this guy because they're, they think he's a little, you know, off. And they, they sort of put him away in a, you know, locked space and they try to care for him and take care of him in the ways that they know how. Uh, but nothing seems to help him, you know, with this delusion, you know. But in listening to him and kind of sensing what's going on, they eventually come to a consensus that his illness has something to do with these things here. So they remove them. It's an interesting story. And this course was actually for uh, people who are studying to be uh, special ed teachers. You know, dealing with people who have you know different skills or uh, different disabilities. And it really tells us something about um, like the consequence of ignorance, not seeing clearly, not understanding. So the way that our culture conditions us, and then we, you know, we fall in line. It's not so easy to go against the stream. So, you know, this process of insight, the question is, are we willing to respect this situation that we have a responsibility 
to get interested in the mind and the causes for happiness, real happiness, not a temporary happiness, uh, moments of real pleasantness, but a happiness that we could say is unconditioned. Meaning a happiness, a stability, a peace, that's not because we've gotten what we wanted, but is there regardless of whether we're healthy or not healthy, get what we want, don't get what we want, are well-liked by others or not so liked by others. So, the Buddha was very clear. He said that it's the not seeing how the mind ends up in contracted states, stressful states. It's the not seeing how that happens that is the cause for it to happen. Or another way you could say that it's when the mind sees how it falls into states of contraction, fear, greed, aversion, delusion, disconnection. When it sees it, it ceases to be a problem. When it sees it clearly enough, it ceases to be a problem. That the falling into states of contraction, heavy states of mind, depends on not seeing how that's all happening. Another way to think of this is, no mind is consciously going to fall into states of woe and difficulty. Because built right built right into the system is the heart cares about. You know, our heart, our mind cares about the mind. We don't have to like find that basic goodness. It's already there. This mind, I'm assuming you see this as well, know this as well. This mind cares about this life. So it wouldn't consciously do something that creates a contracted, heavy, painful state. Yet, this mind falls into those states. So it's the not seeing that that is the cause. And if the mind clearly saw what it was doing, maybe it wouldn't do that. I mean, just as an example, think about some of our addictive patterns. Whether it has to do with alcohol or you know, whatever it might be, there's so many, so many creative ways. Our mind creates uh, pain, painful uh, psychological patterns where it engages in certain activities that are stressful. Last night, uh, we thought we'd go um, have some entertainment with a couple friends, and we went to see Gravity at the Heights Theater. And <laughs> I don't know if any of you know that movie, uh, but it's it's very painful to watch. <laughs> and as I was watching, you know, it's all people in outer space. I'm not giving too much away to, by saying that it's it's all about people uh, suffering from, <laughs> you know, trying to get back to Earth, being out out in space, and trying to get back to Earth, and just the difficulty of that. And, uh, I mean, it's just interesting what we do for entertainment. Like, how stressful that is. 
It's like, why do we do that? <laughs> the Buddha had a, a even more graphic description of this pattern where he said that uh, there were lepers, you know, at the time of the Buddha, and he said it's as if, or it's, uh, it's like when lepers being driven somewhat crazy by the pain, and I guess it's itchy, some, where the disease is on the skin, that they, in their own way, would cauterize it by, they put the, the whatever the uh, happens on your skin when you're a leper, they burn it on the coals to temporarily stop the whatever that yucky feeling was, some itchy feeling. And, uh, of course, it doesn't solve the problem. You know, now they have a burn, but it temporarily frees the mind from the desire to itch or from that yucky feeling, whatever it might be. So this, you know, this sense of real humility about what we understand about happiness. When we honestly look at I mean, this is something we could share to that young adult coming to us. It's like all of our mistakes, thinking this would make me happy. You know, I met this person, and I thought for sure this person would make me happy. And, you know, either it didn't work out or it worked out, but they still didn't make me happy. You know, or I thought getting this car, a safe car, would make me happy. But it was nice for a while, but it didn't really make me happy. And even that, there's some real wisdom in just reviewing all the things we thought would make us happy in a meaningful way and hasn't really made us happy in any lasting way. So this, this should evoke in us this thought experiment about wanting to be able to offer something back, or just more generally to the world, wanting to model a way of living that comes out of some deep understanding about where real happiness lies, and all the avoiding, not modeling all the false dead ends, you know, ways people tend to seek happiness that don't really lead to that. I was talking to somebody tonight about them they used to drive uh, a really nice sports car to come ground on Sunday nights and then sort of feel a little uncomfortable, like, well, maybe that doesn't really fit in with the culture here at the center. Um, and part of that feeling is like uh, we don't want to model to the world that nice things are any sort of meaningful source of happiness. But we shouldn't be modeling to the world that, you know, it's it's also true. We don't want to believe that not having nice things is a cause for happiness. That's not a cause for happiness either, not having nice things. Having nice things isn't a cause for happy, lasting happiness. And not having nice things isn't a cause for happiness, lasting happiness. So... We want to be careful that we don't fall into a superficial idea that, okay, nice things don't lead to happiness. Having a good partner doesn't lead to happiness. Having health doesn't lead to happiness. So I'm going to neglect my health. I'm going to get rid of all my nice things. And I'm going to, you know, leave my partner. 
because they haven't led to nice to lasting happiness. So that's a that's a mistaken road too, thinking that not having these things. So instead, like if nice things come our way, then nice things come our way. If they're not harming other people, there's nothing wrong with having nice things. If nice things don't come our way, okay, nice things aren't coming our way. They don't, for whatever reason, our karma, our causes and conditions, are not leading to a lot of nice things coming our way. But regardless of which of those circumstances or something in between that we inhabit, the question is, do we know anything about real happiness, real peace, and the causes for real unhappiness, heavy, difficult states of mind? This investigation, respecting this investigation, makes sense regardless of our particular circumstances in life. This is really our primary duty as a human being because it, it's how we take care of ourselves and it's how we take care of everyone else by respecting, as the Buddha says, come and see. This phrase is used over and over again in the discourses. Ehi pasipo, come and check it out. Here's what I came to understand. Come and check this out. You know, I came to understand that if you get interested in the mind and in particular interested in how it is that states of contraction arise and how it is that the mind is released from states, contracted states, you'll find, if your mind's like my mind, you'll find a road, a path that works. This, uh, you know, this is basically this insight, you know, that the Buddha suggests we check out is really based on what in Buddhism we call karma, that intentions, intentional action matters. Last week I spoke about sankara. Sometimes this word's translated as intention, sometimes as a mental constructions, mental formations, mental fabrications. It's this activity of mind. It's really the primary, in terms of... Uh, suffering and non-suffering, it's the most important activity of the mind. And it's not about stopping the mind from constructing what it constructs. What does our mind construct? Well, it's constantly constructing meaning. And there's really not much we can do about it, and we don't have to stop the mind from constructing meaning. But it's, what is the mind, how is the mind understanding the meaning it's constructing? What is the mind doing with the meaning that it's constructing? That's something we can do something about. There's a certain lawfulness. This is what we mean by dharma. Dharma is a funny word. Sometimes we use the Pali translation, which is a Pali word, which is dhamma, and then the Sanskrit version of that same word is dharma, which is more common in the West. You see that word dharma a lot now. It usually doesn't even get translated anymore. But if you wanted to translate it, you could translate it as the way it is, or it has this connotation of the lawfulness of the way it is. Like, when the mind starts to see more clearly in an unbiased way the nature of the mind, like the activity of mind, it starts to understand the lawfulness. Like, when there are causes for release, then there's nothing that can stop that. Like, the causes for the heart's release 
by definition, lead to the heart's release. And the causes for the heart, the mind getting tight, lead to the mind getting tight. And it's lawful. So if we are careful in the observing of the mind, the mindfulness of the mind, we will begin to, you know, the lawfulness of the mind will begin to be revealed because it operates in a lawful way. States of suffering, contraction, it's not like a random function. They come about lawfully. And if those supporting causes aren't there, the mind isn't about to fall into a state of suffering. There has to be certain conditions for states of suffering, stress, to arise. Same with states of release and happiness and ease. So when we take up the Buddha's encouragement to uh, check it out, check out the mind, and we listen to his teachings that say, and while you're watching the mind, while you're observing the mind, here's a hint. This is an important hint, he says, you know. Because like, there's so many things to observe about the mind. But notice in particular how mental suffering, mental stress, comes to be. And how that experience of mental stress falls apart, dissolves, and ceases. If you're going to observe the mind, then in particular notice that about the mind. I mean, it's, it's sort of funny to say that because it makes so much sense that even as a young person, before we're adults, we'd be interested in this. I mean, it's like somebody, you know, if we, we had a tree in our backyard for years and years and years, and let's say a walnut tree, something like that. I don't think they grow in Minnesota, but let's just say, you know, we had a beautiful, healthy walnut tree in our backyard. And for years and years, you know, we see the tree... And then, you know, one day, it just occurs to us, or we happen to step on a walnut, and it breaks open, and we look at it, and we sniff it, and we take, and we realize, oh my God, that tastes really good, you know? And uh, then, you know, every year, we get all these wonderful walnuts, and it, it's such a nice thing to have this. And this is the same thing, like if we really knew enough about the mind to support it in abiding in really beautiful wise, loving, blissful states, well, we wouldn't just leave the walnuts on the tree. We would actually do something about the mind, right? So just the fact that we keep falling into holes, like of being depressed, being anxious, being fearful, being angry, being needy, being greedy, being jealous, we keep falling into these difficult states it's because we haven't learned something about the mind. And if we did, if we understood enough, we would be, the mind would be actively setting in motion the causes for beautiful states of mind. I mean, all of us have bumped into beautiful states of mind, I'm assuming. But we don't, the mind's too superficial, too busy, too distracted to have understood, like, how did that, how was it that that beautiful state of mind came into formation, arose? What was behind it? And we've definitely <coughs> fallen into difficult states of mind, you know, probably several times a day, maybe in pervasive ways for weeks, months at times, maybe even years at times for some of you, where we've been in really 
predominantly difficult, painful, yucky states. But it's amazing how little curiosity... I mean, it's, it's easy to understand when we're oppressed by difficult states of mind, but how little curiosity, like, what is it that's happening that's supporting this, maintaining this difficult state of mind? Is the mind doing anything right now that's part of maintaining this difficult state of mind? Because we have this very strong habit of externalizing the cause. This mind is in a difficult place because of what you think about me, or what you did to me, or the way the world is. We externalize it, and and therefore we inhabit this idea that we're helpless. The mind, the state of the mind, is just how it is, and there's nothing I can do about it. So the Buddha asks us to get interested, to check out the mind, to in particular get interested in how it releases stress, how it builds up, constructs the experience of stress, and to begin to notice that it's lawful. That's a real turning point when we realize that happiness, real happiness, real spaciousness, kindness, you know, states of just basic goodness of the heart and mind, that this is a lawful arising that the mind can directly participate in. And the same with hellish states of mind. This is a lawful arising. They are lawfully arising, and the mind is participating in the arising of hellish states of mind. It's not accidental. So that's like... uh, it's like taking birth as a, in, in a, the deepest sense of the word, a competent human being, as opposed to a helpless human being. It's like all of a sudden we've been handed the user manual for the mind. You know, we're born with the mind, but they forgot to, this is, this is how it works, you know. And fortunately, through history, there have been some wise people who came to understand how the mind works. And then it's our job to, take the teachings, you know, and you know user manuals are hard to use. And it's even the Buddha who was quite articulate, even though, you know, completely different culture a long, long time ago, still the teachings are, you know, it's a relatively good user manual. But it's still hard to take the user manual and to directly apply it. That's our work. There's nobody who can do that work for us. We have to be inspired enough by the teachings, by the instructions, to take a good, persistent look at the mind, to cultivate mindfulness of the mind. So, there's a series of insights that then arise when we do this, according to the Buddha. This is the map, you know, this is what's in his instruction manual, operating manual for the mind. You know, first is, it should be checked out, and it's, and the not checking out the mind is what perpetuates suffering for us and for the culture generally. What's that? Checking out of the mind. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, so we have that insight, checking out the mind, and that it's relevant, and then that it's lawful. That's that inspiration, like, oh, I can do something about this life. I'm not helpless. And it changes our relationship to distractions. It's not that we don't care about renovating the kitchen or the new car or the new phone or the new partner or the new exciting thing. 
It's just that there's something so much more relevant and interesting that we're interested in now. We become like, you know, really avid seekers. Like, this is what's relevant. Uh, yeah, I may have to do my job. I still have to raise my kids. But all that activity, you know, of raising my kids, doing the job, taking care of my body, taking care of my relationships, all of it is in the service of knowing the mind. So it doesn't mean that we have to even, you know, when we start having this insight that it's lawful, that I can really participate in how things unfold for this mind. We don't have to like immediately change our whole life because all of these situations that we find ourselves in show us, they, in a sense, they're reflecting back what's going on in the mind. It's like when we see another human being, it's like what we're really seeing is how the mind is reacting to this interaction with this other human being. And we can see, like, what is the mind doing? And is what the mind doing, is it leading to tight states or states of release? How is the mind relating to this experience? What is the mind doing? What is unfolding? Is it skillful or unskillful? Leading to states of tension or states of release? And then the deepest insight, and I'll leave it here, we'll pick it up again next week. But then the more subtle insight is this insight into the unconditioned. And that insight arises from understanding the conditions. Now, I talked about this last week in terms of Ajahn Chah's uh, teaching on the still flowing water. So in any moment of experience, there's something moving. There's a dynamic of hearing and seeing and thinking and sensing the sensations in the body. And then there's something that's not moving or unconditioned. And we know the unconditioned by understanding the conditions. So we get interested in the breath. The breath is a condition. The breath comes in, it goes on. It's something that's moving. And we can understand it. We understand that it is moving. We understand that it's not personal. And it's not worthy of grasping or controlling. It doesn't help to take the breath personally. It's not satisfying, actually, to take the breath personally. It's stressful to take the breath personally. Now, we could say this about any condition. Like even sitting here and seeing right now, the seeing, that visual experience, that's another condition that's happening, that's being known. And it's our habit, a very deep habit, to take what we're seeing personal. In the same way that it's our habit of the mind to take the words you're hearing personally, and the sensations you're feeling personally. But when we really look carefully, we see that taking the conditions, which are always coming and going, and they're coming and going in an impersonal way. We're not in control of the sensations or the sounds or the sights or even the thoughts that are coming and going. So we can see that taking it personally isn't satisfying. It's stressful. So the heart stops taking it personally. It stops identifying or grasping, clinging to the conditions that are being known. There's still conditions being known, but the mind now is learning not to cling. 
And it's the not clinging to the conditions of the present moment, basically not being attached, right? In not being attached, not clinging, that the unconditioned is revealed. It's like a realization that we, the mind or the heart begins to intuit. It begins to intuit, but we'll never understand the unconditioned as long as the mind is gripping, grasping, attaching to the different objects of experience. As long as the mind is experiencing and taking the objects of experiencing personally, which means grasping or attaching, identifying, then it's blinded by that activity. That's the basic ignorance, according to the Buddha. The basic ignorance arises through the process of attaching or identifying with experience. But for us, it seems like second nature to do that. This is the blindness that we don't understand. That's that story that I was telling about. It's like we're blind because we just assume that's the appropriate way to relate to experience, to attach, to take it personally, to identify with it, to grasp it. We grasp it in the sense like if it's yucky, we grasp it in order to throw it away or to protect ourselves or to get away from it. If it's pleasant, we grasp it because we want it to last, we hope it doesn't go away, we hope it gets bigger, better. So we're personally investing in experience. Even neutral experience, we take personally, we personally feel it's irrelevant. That's how we grasp neutral experience. So nothing, no experience that's seen or heard or touched or thought, no condition of our experience is left alone. That's why sometimes the phrase, you know, allowing experience to be is very useful. It's like a little instruction you can give yourself. Okay, heart, can you just allow things to be? It's this way now. This is how it is. This is being known. Can this be okay? Can the heart just allow things to be? as an invitation to not grasp, not attach, not identify with experience. So I just wanted to leave us here before opening it up for discussion that this series of insights, which first just begins with realizing that knowing the mind is relevant, and then the deeper insight that it's lawful, like how stress arises, how stress ceases in the mind, it's lawful. There's a way to participate and then understanding that the ultimate way for the heart to participate is to leave everything alone. Non-grasping, non-attachment, non-identification. Now, I just want to mention, this does not, this is not the equivalent of non-action. Sometimes people think non-grasping is the same as not doing anything. But not doing anything is doing something. There's no way for a human being to not do anything. It's really about how the mind is relating to the action. So the action of not doing anything, just sitting on the couch and vegging out, how does the mind relate to that? Is it attached, taking it personally? Or maybe you're the most active person in the world and you're going to change everything and you're a great activist. How is the mind relating to that? Is it attached? Is it identified? Is it tight? That's the relevant question. Not what you're doing. You can do what's appropriate to do in your life. Each person in our, each in our own particular situation, what we should do is going to be different. But 
the practice is exactly the same. How is the mind relating to our life situation? That's what's relevant. And again, we'll pick this up next week, but we have about 15 minutes. It's time for any questions that you might have. But also, those of you who've been practicing would like to share your own experience. This is a good time for that. It's nice to hear how practice looks in other people's lives. So what comes to mind? Yeah, Jeff. Mark, I was just struck by a theme I was noticing in your talk, and I just wanted to mention that you started by talking about this situation, imaginary situation, where a young person comes up to us and asks us to share wisdom that we gain you know, in our life about happiness. And at that time, I thought, well, that, that happens to me, you know, hundreds of times a day. It's me. It's the, it's the inner confused one inside of me asking the wiser one inside of me, well, give me some clues here about happiness. How does this work? What have you learned? And then and then all the rest of the things you said in the talk were all pieces of advice that that wise one would give to the unwise one within, within oneself. That's just struck by that I wanted to mention. Yeah, that sounds really wise. And that's, you know, that's the whole point. Even on the level of just conceptually understanding these teachings, then the mind is can the wiser mind can regurgitate the teachings. I don't know if this worked, but I remember that the Buddha said this, right? Now that's better than, you know, I remember when I was watching Friends back in the 80s, and the guy said this to the, you know, like, where are we taking our advice? <laughs> so it's nice just even on that conceptual level, and then if it's more than just, you know, what we remember the Buddha said, but we've checked it out, and we found it to be really useful directly in our experience, then we can, then when we, the wise voice says this to the, you know, to the moment's experience, well, I found this to be true. It has a certain resonance of power. Thanks, Jeff, for sharing that. What else comes to mind? Yeah, Mesky. It's funny you say that. I asked my mother the same question yesterday. <laughs> and she's like, well, you guys, I had uh, five children, and that's what I learned. I'm like, that's not any lasting happiness. What, what you know, I'm like trying to dig things. Let me give you an example. That's not what I'm saying. So, anyway, I still haven't found what lasting happiness means because I've always confused in a way or not clear about there isn't really a lasting happiness because every you know, the impermanence have really set in my heart so how do you even find a lasting happiness when things are impermanent that's where I sit all the time when I ask this question yeah but, but one thing you probably observe, Mesky, is that even though you understand deeply that everything's impermanent, and it, rightly so, it, it, it sort of raises the question, well, what kind of happiness can there be when everything is impermanent? 
But one thing that you you see, I know you do in your practice, is all the ways the mind resists impermanence. Doesn't like it, gets tied around it, wants to be in denial of it. All of that can cease. Like, and again, this is just a way for the mind, the heart, to begin to imagine real happiness. The harder mind that doesn't have a problem with impermanence, doesn't have a problem with the ephemeral, unreliable, and uncertain nature of experience. The harder mind that, or an understanding that isn't surprised that understands anything can happen anytime, and it's not surprised when good things happen, and not surprised when bad things happen, and not surprised when things stay the same. That, that peace of a heart that's not shook, not shaken, maybe, by what comes and goes. And then, instead of thinking now, sometimes when you hear that, you, we imagine that, well, that would be like death. You know, like, oh, you're just flat, you're unresponsive. But think about it this way, like a heart that isn't, doesn't get tight, isn't pushed around by what comes and goes, but is perfectly nimble in participating in this world that comes and goes. So like a, a beautiful engagement, but no tightness, no trying to control what's coming and going, but a full-hearted, wholehearted engagement, participation in what's coming and going. That kind of gives us a flavor of what real happiness is. A heart that doesn't have a problem with the conditions being the way that they are. So that it can completely participate. And that complete participation we call love in the deepest sense. That willingness to include and respond. The responsive part is compassion and the including part is that basic friendliness, like to allow things to be the way that they are. I think I, my, my user confusion is the word lasting, or anything that, you know, like, also is going to end and I'm going to die someday, or something, whatever, right? Like, this is a dance that you do without just being stuck in, like, oh my God, it's going to end, so I'm not going to be happy. That's, I completely understand that, but you say like the lasting happiness. For any, I mean, it's, I'm always struggling with like the lasting or eternity. That just does not sink in. Yeah, but you need to you need to start including the activity of that investigation in your investigation. So, like, notice that stress. Just as you're trying to figure this out or understand this. Notice that stress. What is the cause? Like, there's a somebody who wants to know, right? There's a somebody grasping at some final answer. So, instead of thinking that the release, like what we're calling lasting happiness, is getting that answer, maybe it's realizing that that answer, there isn't anybody who needs that answer. Maybe that answer doesn't need to arise. There isn't really a somebody who needs that answer in the way that we imagine there is. Wouldn't that be peaceful? Like, it just even, you know, just as a thought experiment, like just imagining not needing meaning. Like to be able to live our life, to do what's next, but not being burdened or 
dependent on meaning. Like, I'm having a good life, I'm having a bad life, I'm doing pretty well, I'm not doing well at all. Like, not needing that meaning, but still willing to completely do what's next in our lives. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, I don't know your name. Chi. Chi. Maybe a little bit louder. I was questioning you about the, the, the definition of happiness in the context of is the process or systems that catches itself as a feedback, you know, telling us that this is going on and we, uh, we catch ourselves in that moment. And as a feedback process, we know, mostly we know what we should do with it, right? And, and then I'm confusing that with happiness as a re-styling and a... And a very happy state. That's the confusion I have. That the picture, yeah, the smiling, and then there is also this process, the systems that catches itself. Um, which are we talking about here? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. So as I understood Chi's question about happiness, and he points to two. One is this this happiness that arises in understanding the process nature. And a, another more conventional use of the word happiness, where we're feeling good. That's a kind of happiness. But in that ordinary experience of feeling good, like being with a good uh, group of friends and feeling safe and happy with them, that happiness, even though it may not be obvious to the mind, on some level, and especially when the mind has developed more sensitivity, the mind realizes the fragility of that happiness. So in a way, even though we normally don't notice it because our mind is too superficial, when the mind's more sensitive, we notice that it's tainted. Even though it's a nice moment, relatively speaking, the mind knows it won't last. So it's not real happiness because of its temporarily, it's temporary. And, uh, so, in Buddhism, we, we sometimes don't even use the word happiness, or if we do, we're using it in contrast in this dualistic, like, it's happy, some, like, happiness is when we get rid of what causes unhappiness, right? And, and unhappiness arises when we lose the happiness. So there, you can't have one without the other. That's a more conventional use of the word happiness. So, in Buddhist circles, we often talk about happiness, the deeper happiness, or lasting happiness, is an independence. It's the happiness of the mind or the heart that's independent of conditions. It's a peace, the mind realizing its independence. But this independence is not due to a distance. It's an independence right here in the moment, right in the middle of things. But the mind isn't, in a sense, entangling itself in the conditions. And that's that understanding of the process nature. When the mind understands the process nature, it realizes its independence. And I talked about this last week as the mind knowing the difference between the activity of the mind and what we call the mind itself. And it's an insight, it's a realization, it's a discovery. And the, the, the discovery arises slowly, usually slowly, gradually, when the mind begins to respect that Knowing the mind is relevant. So it actually does its homework. It's looking at the mind. And it's using the map that Buddha gave 
Look at the experience of stress, how it arises, how it ceases. Really look at that. And in looking at that, really get a deeper and deeper sense of what these conditions are that are being known. Any experience, any condition that's being known is being seen as something that's impersonal, impermanent, and fundamentally not satisfying. And that's how, that's the slow, gradual discovering of the mind's independence, the mind realizing its freedom. And that happiness, it's maybe better not to even use the word happiness, but it's the ultimate happiness, but the happiness isn't the same as the kind of happiness we get when we're out with friends, having a nice meal, a good laugh, as beautiful and wholesome as that is, the mind, when it's clear, understands that this is something that comes and goes. And it, it it's not something we can count on. It's a fragile thing. Any last thoughts before we end? Or pun? Um, I, I just got my job back after eight years. And I think this is going to be the last time I'm talking like this because I realized this is really not my job. It can come and go. I'm a teacher. Who knows? And I even joked about it. I think I, it's been seven weeks since school starts. So I start joking at work. Well, who knows? I will be gone by the end of the year. And I noticed that my attitude has changed a little bit. Um, it is not my job. And I'm just going to have fun with it. I treat, I think I treat people nicer. You know, people that I supervise seem to be happier. You know, instead of being so rigid, we, it, it feels lighter at work. Yeah. And that's what I discovered. Yeah, and this is a really practical example of what we were just talking about, that independence. Because we want to always ground these ideas in very ordinary experiences. And just, as Oropana is saying, just from her own life experience, her mind is more independent, less identified with the job. She's still doing the job, probably, it sounds like, doing the job even better, better results, because she knows it's not her job, it's something that comes and goes. And maybe it will last for the rest of your career, or maybe it will, you won't even get to the end of the year before they lose funding again or something. But could we have, like, could that be a way for more happiness? Like when you're interacting with your children, I mean, something really personal. Like just to not let the mind take that, like uh, Pierre just has a newborn child, you know, and to look at that newborn child, not in terms of she's mine or he's mine, but... There is this child, and there is this love, and this deep desire to care, and that's all I know. I don't have to add anything more to it. And you walk into your car in a few minutes, or get on your bike in a few minutes, and it's like, there is this bike, you know? Right now, there is this bike, and the key fits, you know? And there's this driving home, being known. But we don't need to, like, I hope this car lasts for another ten years, or maybe it's time to trade... We don't need to uh, create drama around it. We can hold it lightly, and it doesn't actually get in the way of participating in life. So we need to leave it here. Take a moment, let go of the words. Maybe time for one or two breaths together.
sense of gratefulness for all the people before us who have done their practice and shared it, and now we're the recipients, this great lineage of human wisdom and compassion. And it's our turn to embody these teachings, to realize wisdom and compassion in our own lives, and to model these teachings so that they continue on. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.